following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, uh, we're in a new book of the Bible. <laughs> Don't cheer that loud, Jules. We weren't in 2 Timothy that long. Uh, we're going into 1 John. So the context of 1 John, just very briefly, is John was the last surviving apostle. By this point, and this is A.D. 85 to 95, somewhere in there, uh, Nero had already gone through intense uh, persecutions. The apostles were dead. Uh, most of the disciples were dead. I mean, John is one of the last surviving kind of founders of the early church. And he's going to write just a couple things before he dies. He's going to write First, Second, and Third John, and he's going to write the book of Revelation. And so think of this in the context of John is the last apostle, once again, kind of the last guy who was his eyewitness to Jesus, who has the apostolic authority to write the Bible, and he's getting older, the clock is ticking, and in some ways, all the books we've gone through in the New Testament, we've been trying to go through them in chronological order, think of this one as, as almost getting even weightier. Time is short, and there's things that need to be said. So we're going to start reading in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to go through verses 1 through 7 today. <clears throat> we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is all reference to Jesus. The language is a little symbolic. He's talking about Jesus. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship, and I'm noting in your notes that the word here is koinonia, only because the word is going to be used again here very shortly. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That's also koinonia. Just note the connection of the same word for fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Your translation might say your joy. Don't get hung up on it. The idea is that fellowship brings joy. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie, and we do not know what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's a great opening. Uh, as we go through the book of 1 John, you're going to see this kind of introduces a theme that John will be coming back to again and again. Let's just note a couple things about the opening. I'm, I'm going to land pretty hard today on the whole thing about walking in the light, but just to note some language here at the beginning. John's probably responding to this group of people called the Gnostics who were having an influence on the early church. The Gnostics, this is a real short summary, they thought the physical world was evil, that all material things were evil. So they didn't believe Jesus could actually be God in the flesh because why on earth would God become material? So John is making clear, I'm one of the witnesses. Uh, we saw him, we listened to him, we touched him. It's a sensory kind of explanation. John says, there is no doubt the Gnostics are wrong. Jesus was the incarnation of God, God in the flesh. And then he explains how this fellowship we can have with God is, as he would have experienced personally with Jesus. 
This is the same kind of fellowship that we have with others. So the idea is that as I develop a fellowship with God, uh, Lori and I develop a fellowship that is grounded in the fellowship of God. It's kind of the same kind of fellowship. There's something about it that goes hand in hand. And with this, he says, okay, God is light. There's no darkness at all in, in God. The, the Bible is full of this language of God as this pure and true and holy and just God. There's, there's no shadows. There's no changing. This is who God is. And as we fellowship with this kind of God and we're transformed into the image of Christ, there's something important that happens to us. Jesus said, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So Jesus is pulling us into the light of God. Well, no wonder then that our fellowship is better because now we're not people who are fellowshipping in darkness. We're people who are fellowshipping in light. So John, right off the bat, has this deeply intertwined claim that if we really want to fellowship with each other, and this isn't just potlucks, though it includes potlucks, and it should ideally involve food, when we fellowship with each other, this is knowing each other and loving each other, and it's the process of forgiveness and repentance and all this, all this good stuff we talk about in church life. And John is clear, that will happen when we walk in the light of Christ. So for John, fellowship with others follows faith in God and displays itself in works that build fellowship with God and others. Think of it this way. Life from Christ exhibits itself with characteristics of the life of Christ. And as we all begin to experience that together, the fellowship of the church flourishes. So God is light, and him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and we do not know what is true. All right. I want to talk about responding to recent scandals of all kinds that have been happening in the world. So this could be everything from scandals in Hollywood to politicians to Christian leaders. It's the kind of thing where we, we look at something that happened and we go, that is monstrous and terrible. And then as Christians, we begin to wrestle with, okay, so how do we respond to that? because we're talking about sin. And now, as I talk about it, this is sinners talking about sinners. And now there's gonna be a danger that potentially um, I, I could begin to get an unrighteous judgment and pride. If I'm looking at someone else and I'm thinking, wow, they're really monstrous. Thank God I'm not like that person. Uh, okay, I'm glad I'm not doing those things, but how do I process this in a way that does not somehow put me up on a pedestal that I don't deserve? And yet at the same time, uh, we can't be timid about naming sin and acknowledging the impact of sin on the world because not all things land in the world the same way. I was thinking recently, saw an article that some parts fell off of a plane this last week. Did anybody see that? I want to say it was Oklahoma. Some parts fell off of a plane. Uh, in World War II, some parts fell off of a plane. An atomic bomb lands on the world differently than a door handle, right? So they both fell off a plane. And if we, if we try to just kind of make that clay, we're kind of ignoring the impact of things in the world. All right, so how do we as Christians navigate this discussion of sin? It all lands in the world. We all contribute to it in some fashion. Where do we go from here? So I, I want us to walk into this this Sunday. And I'm going to acknowledge to you right now I'm doing this with fear and trembling. Because it's one sermon, 
I recorded it Friday night ahead of time because I got my second COVID shot yesterday and I wasn't sure if I'd be here or not. I recorded it Friday night and it was 45 minutes long, y'all. Like, I realized I had a lot to say and felt like I was just scratching the surface. Don't worry, I streamlined it for this morning. I think I have it down to 43, so we should be good. But I, I think one of the reasons I'm going to be wordy this morning is because I'm a little nervous about this subject because I want to talk about sin and I want us to acknowledge it uh, and see it for what it is. It is the life in darkness that John warns about. And we are called to light, so I want us to wrestle with the darkness. But I, once again, I'm just acknowledging, I'm, I'm afraid there's a danger that we can begin to just look at others and go, I don't think they're talking about me, so I must be good. And so we're going to walk into that tension this morning. And I'm going to promise you that it's an imperfect walk. I'm going to promise you that there is more to be said on this. And I, I hope that you wrestle with this with me. And I hope that it inspires conversations that ought to follow from something like this. All right. A lot of the discussion centers around some version of two common phrases. And those phrases are, there but for the grace of God go I. And we're all sinners saved by grace, and so we're all in need of God's forgiveness. Now, hear me carefully. There is deep, profound truth in both of these. They could also be misunderstood or misapplied if we're not careful. Because these phrases take place in the context of the entire Bible. So I want to be sure I'm not taking a phrase that is highlighting truth about a particular thing without seeing it in the context of all the truth that is present in Scripture. I think the foundational question for all of these is, are all sins equal in the eyes of God? So now I'm wondering, equal how? Are we talking equal in eternal consequences? Uh, equal in their impact on the world? Equal in how they affect my process of sanctification or how they might break my fellowship with other people? There's other questions that follow from this. Do we all walk in the same kind of darkness? Are some of us just in shadows while some of us are in a really inky, blinding darkness? And even if that's true, does the distinction matter? Do all sins have an equal impact on our fellowship with God and others? So let's start by building a framework. First point. The unholiness of all sin is incompatible with the holiness of God. All sin happens in and contributes to the darkness that John is talking about. They all contribute to the evil that breaks the world. In fact, in Christianity, the Bible is clear, every sin is fatal to our souls. The Bible uses different words for sin. At minimum, and we've talked about that in previous sermons, so I'm not going to do a whole sermon on it. The word hamartia is missing the mark in the New Testament. It means you might have been aiming at the goal, but you simply missed it. In some ways, it's the gentlest word for sin. You've missed the mark. And then you find other words that are used in the Greek in the New Testament that it's just, it's a shattering of the world. Like this is the kind of sin that we're thinking about when we talk about chaos. But the reality is all of these sins lead to spiritual death. All sin requires a price to be paid that we cannot pay ourselves. All sin requires a repentance that leads to forgiveness, and it will all require an act of God's grace that he gives to us because we cannot possibly atone ourselves for the things that we do that are sinful. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That sin, by the way, is hamartia. 
There's a reason I made this point a little harder earlier. It's the gentlest word for sin in the New Testament, if there is such a thing, and the wages of that is death. So there's no way you can look at the, there's no way we can look at the presence of sin in our lives and go, okay, that's not one of the sins that leads to death. Nope. It's a sin that leads to death. That's just the nature of sin. A long time ago, Augustine had some insight about this. He said, just as the love of God, which builds up the city of God, is the source and root of all virtues, so too the love of self, which builds up the city of Babylon, is the root of all sins. All right. Uh, So Augustine is a scripture, but I think there's wisdom there. The love of self, which builds up Babylon, is the root of all sins. What that means, if Augustine is correct, and I, I think he, what he has to say aligns with biblical truth, is that when I commit any kind of sin, I am building up where? Babylon. I'm building up Babylon. So there's a sense in which we are all contributing when we sin in any fashion to the building of Babylon. So we all walk in the same kind of darkness. All sinners will pay either with our own lives or with the life of Christ. And then from sin, there's another kind of death that kind of ripples out from that. There's the death of relationship. There's the death of innocence. It's the death of trust. And those are real burdens that are borne by people around us, or perhaps we've borne them when we've experienced the sins that others have done to us. And these all require the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from the penalty of this sin. And I think this is what we mean when we say the ground is level at the foot of the cross just means we all kneel there. We all have to repent for the part we have in building Babylon. We're all dead in our sins without the life of Christ. We all require the grace of God given through Jesus. Okay, did I make that point clearly? (laughs) I hope I landed on that one. Well, having said that, the temporal implications, and I'm going to keep using this phrase, and all I mean by that is the ripple effect of our sin in this temporary life. The temporal implications of sin are handled in a different way biblically than the eternal implications of sin. So this need for all of us to be arm in arm recognizing our need for God's grace because we are all helping to build Babylon when we sin, the Bible keeps that in a healthy tension with a presentation of the way sin impacts the world, that there's a gradation of sin. Some things land in the ways others don't. There are atomic bombs and there are door handles and they land in the world in different ways. So let's start with the Old Testament to look at this. We see even with his people, God establishes a different kind of system of justice for things that happen. And I would think of it as the principle of sowing and reaping. There's the eternal side of it. There's the temporal side of it. Temporally speaking, you sow a lot, you reap a lot. It's the way God built the world. So Genesis 18.20 states that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were unusually grievous. And you see that coming up over and over in Scripture. There's something about what they did that stood out in an already sinful world. Jeremiah 16, 12 tells the Israelites they had done worse than their fathers had, and their fathers had not done well, just to be clear. In Exodus, Moses says to the people, you've sinned a great sin when you made gods of gold. Same phrase in 2 Kings, Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them sin a great sin. And in case you're wondering what the nuances of that word is, it's simply really big sin. So there are sins and there are really big sins. 
God revealed the sins of Israel in three stages to Ezekiel, and each time he said, your sins now are more detestable than the sins that you did before. In number 15, the Bible contrasts sin done unintentionally and sin done, your translation might say, with a high hand. It just means you're haughty and purposely rebellious, like you're shaking your fist at God. Scripture speaks of sins that cry out to God. There's a couple places it says the blood of particular victims cried out. And it's not like there weren't other victims with blood, but there's certain situations that seem to stand out in the midst of already terrible sin. So then you see in the Old Testament, there are escalating temporal responses to this. So look at the Old Testament law. A thief pays restitution. Someone who practices the occult, they get kicked out of Israel. Someone who does premeditated murder, they give their life. I like this summary from the Gospel Coalition. Distinctions are made between different levels of clean and unclean regarding different sacrifices, and especially between unintentional and intentional sins. Unintentional sins can be atoned for, but certain intentional sins, specifically high-handed sins, are so grievous they cannot be atoned for and they require the death penalty. This kind of distinction makes no sense unless we think in terms of the degrees of sin. So let's keep in mind, everyone went to the temple to offer a sacrifice. There was no one in the nation of Israel who could take a sacrifice day off and go, you know what, you know what, guys, I was good. This last week or month or day, I nailed it. Nope. Everybody goes to the temple to make sacrifices, great or small. But the way in which the sins they committed impacted and played out in their community life was certainly different. Even Jesus talks about greater and lesser sins. When he is talking with Pilate, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And when he speaks with the scribes and Pharisees, he talks about they'll receive a greater damnation because of their hypocrisy. And at one point he says, listen, you're straining out gnats and swallowing camels as if there were gnats and camels. The New Testament writers feel the same way. First John, well, this will come up later in First John. Uh, this is from chapter 5, beginning of verse 16. There's a sin that is ultimately fatal and leads to death. I'm not talking about praying for that fatal sin. I'm talking about all those wrongs and sins that plague God's family that don't lead to death. And then let's go back to the reformers, which are part of our tradition. For them, all sin is mortal before God. That is, eternally speaking, we all deserve death. Our only hope is that we're united to Christ in saving faith and declared justified by him. For fallen creatures to stand before God, we need Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us and all of our sin completely paid for by his substitutionary death. This does not entail that we should reject a distinction between all sin is equal before God and various degrees of sin in terms of their overall effects on the person, on others, and on the world. So now, if you're like me, you're thinking of something else that Jesus said in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so is that Jesus saying... 
there, we ought to make no distinction between the intents of the heart and the actions of our hand. And I'm going to suggest no, because we have already heard teachings from Jesus that talks about greater and lesser sins. Either Jesus is contradicting himself or he is giving us input that we're meant to put together into a big picture. And what I would argue is that what Jesus is saying in this teaching is that both scenarios reflect a heart darkened with sin that will answer to God for the judgment it deserves. And in both cases, the people will need to throw themselves the mercy of God for his grace to forgive them. God sees both sins as having eternal implications. Both deserve judgment. Both require repentance. But they don't land in the world the same way temporally. I mean, Jesus makes that distinction himself. Not all sins impact the image bearers around us the same way that other, sinners, other sins do. So I would summarize it this way. The sins of the heart deserve condemnation and need forgiveness. The sins of the hand deserve a greater condemnation and also need forgiveness. So I'm going to put it this way. If all sins were in every sense equal or in every sense not different, then if you're thinking of somebody that you'd like to kill, God forbid, try not to look any of you in the eye. <laughs> if you're thinking of someone that you'd like to kill, and there's no difference between thinking about it and doing it, you might as well do it. But all of us would go, yeah, no, it would be far better if you stopped with just thinking about it. That in itself requires some deep repentance and some real soul searching. But God forbid you think, well, they're all the same, so let's just do this. If sins were in every sense equal and in every sense not different, then someone struggling with lust might as well act out on it. Thinking, well, I'm thinking about having an affair. Jesus said it's the same thing, so let's just do this. I don't think any of us in here would go, you're right. That is the exact same thing. I think we'd all go, oh, no, no, there's an important distinction. You've got issues in the first one, but now there's a ripple effect and an impact on the world that was not happening in the first scenario. Uh, there's been a lot in the news lately about people who are abusive, all right, so would we say to abusers that, you know, if you have unrepentant lust in your mind, you might as well act out on it because there's no difference? No, there's victims in the second situation that were not present in the first situation, right? So believe the Bible gives us permission, in fact, probably demands that we look at the way sin lands in the world and recognize the impact that it leaves. I, let's think just in a legal perspective. It would be foolish for someone who realizes, hey, I just stole a pencil and committed a misdemeanor to go, well, all right, might as well do the felony because they're all the same in the eyes of the law. Now I'm robbing a bank. I think we would all look at that and go, no, should have stopped with the pencil. Robbing the bank was bad. I was watching a movie called Knives Out. Anybody seen Knives Out? Okay, okay, so... There's a scene where the villain is close to the end of the movie. Okay, spoiler alert. If you don't want to hear the spoiler alert, you got to do this. Uh, you find out the villain has killed two people. And it, the person who kind of makes this clear is standing in front of him. And you can tell he has murderous intent in his heart. And he's like, all right, in for a penny, in for a pound, and tries to kill her. Okay, so killing three people is worse than killing two people. Are we all good with this? <laughs> 
And had that dude simply thought about killing any of them versus actually killing them, that's that's better. All bad, right? It's it's not as if we want to minimize the impact of what has led someone to a place of darkness in their heart that they're ready to kill people. But if they didn't kill people, okay, I think we're good. I think I made my point. We could simultaneously recognize all sins are bad. All of them are walking us into the valley of the shadow of spiritual death at minimum. And we could say that without having to level the impact that sin has on the world. Every step has to be dealt with and surrendered. Uh, Every step we go to Christ and ask forgiveness, and the minute it begins to impact others, we're going to them and asking forgiveness. Every step. But they don't all land the same in the world. I'm about to quote Justin Bieber. This is the first time, and God willing, the last. So Justin Bieber and Shawn Mendes have a song, and the chorus is, what if I trip, what if I fall, then am I the monster? And my thought when I heard that was, well, no, but if you trip and fall into a place where monsters are created, you better get out or you will. Nobody who we look at and say they're a moral monster started that way. They tripped and fell somewhere where monsters are made. And there's choices that have to be made. And there's a difference between tripping and falling into that place and getting back out versus staying in that place and starting to like it and inviting the monsters home for dinner. So I don't make this point so that we can look at our sins and say, you know, it's just a step into the shadows. I'm not like that person. That person sprinted into the darkness, and now they've built a house there, and they seem to really like it. At least I'm not that person. Okay, honestly, if you're thinking that, then you're further in darkness than you think you are. Your heart's dark if that's where you're going with this. And what I beg you is to seek the forgiveness of God. All right? I'm making the point about this temporal gradation of sin for two reasons, and I need you to hear both of them before you reach a conclusion from my first point. My first point is this. If we are not careful, we will say we're all sinners in need of forgiveness when we hear something terrible, and it's going to sound like a minimization of the way that that sin landed in the world and impacted the world. That's once again the same as stealing a pencil is the same as robbing a bank. Or thinking impure thoughts about someone is the same as abusing them. If we're not careful, saying we are all sinners in need of grace, which is a true statement, can come across as a minimization or a dismissal of the impact that sin has on people. So I would ask you this, please, pass a biblically appropriate judgment on all sin. Hear me, I did not say on the hearts of all sinners. The Bible commands us to observe fruit and make righteous judgments about the fruit that we see. To not do that is to give up a responsibility we have in the world about naming things and calling them what they are. And don't let the fact that we're all sinners stop us from lamenting the horrific escalation of sin that happens. We can do both. 
We can lament that we are all sinners who helped to build Babylon. Are, are, are we all? Okay. Fear and trembling. We can lament that we are all sinners helping to build Babylon. And at the same time go, though I did that, that doesn't stop me from saying, please do not build Babylon like that. I'm looking at Old Testament prophets. I promise you they weren't perfect. I promise you they weren't perfect. And yet, they called out sin. Not because they weren't sinners. They had their own business to deal with with God. They went to the temple and made sacrifices. But it didn't stop them from going, you who are sacrificing, sacrificing babies on the altar of Molech, you must stop. Right? They call, when, when God put it on their heart, they called it out. When we see sin impacting the image bearers around us, and that's the whole world, but then in the church, when we see sin impacting the children of God, the bride of Christ, God forbid we stay silent. And that is held, that's held on one hand, and once again, the other hand, we are going, oh, dear God, let me see my heart. Uh, help me know the sins I must repent of and the ways I'm impacting of the world and send people in my life to call me out when they need to call me out. But we can't be silent when God's children are hurt. Then here's my second point. We also have to take seriously that we're all sinners in need of forgiveness. And there but for the grace of God go I. And I don't mean by that that we will all inevitably end up in the same place that people in the news have been ending. I simply mean this. We all have the capacity to step into the shadows and keep going. We all know this. Amen? We all know this. We have the capacity to step into shadows and keep going. And even if we don't go so far as to become monstrous in the sense that what we're doing is just crushing the world, we know what it's like to explore the land of darkness and kind of like it. Thank you, Doug. I was wondering if anyone would affirm that. We know what it's like to enjoy hanging out there. We all know this. Right? People don't wake up one morning and go, I think I'll be a serial sexual predator or a mass shooter or start Enron. Those of you who don't know what Enron is, it ended up robbing thousands of people of their life savings. Just a, a terrible, greedy thing. People don't wake up one morning and start there. They start with a small step. Monsters aren't made overnight. It's a slow process. And unless we're intentional and we are leaning into God's grace and we are living lives of honesty and transparency and allowing God's people to speak to us and God's word to be held up as a mirror and God's spirit to really deal with us, uh, we're going to wade into the waters of sin. And at some point, our momentum is going to create this undertow that just drags us into the deep places we never imagined we'd be, and likely by that point we're taking people with us. We can all drown accidentally because we went waiting on purpose. I read a book once by the detective in the John Bonet Ramsey case. I've, I've probably used this example before, but it's just lingered with me for a long time. He said when detectives... Uh, detect, uh, uh, what's the word, detectives, detect, 
crimes, especially really violent ones, they're not concerned about the person who snaps and kills somebody. He said, if I remember correctly, those people always turn themselves in because they're so bothered by it. They can't believe they did such a terrible thing. Their conscience will not rest. They will either turn themselves in or they'll start telling people who will then turn them in. He said, we don't worry about them. We catch them. It's the people who started early with small acts of violence. And by the time they kill a person, they just don't care. And he said, that's why you'll see police make a really big deal if they find small animal mutilations. They want to catch that person because that's the person who's going to begin to kill, will eventually kill a person and just not care and they'll never be able to catch them. I remember a number of years ago, there was an issue out by where we live where there was there were dead cats on stop signs, I believe it was, and the police were worried. Yep, that's escalated already, and that's probably going to keep going. That's how you get to the place of the monstrous kind of thing that crashes into the world. Thomas Brooks says, sin is of an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, till it has the soul to the very height of sin. By all this we see that the yielding to lesser sins draws the soul to the committing of greater. Ecclesiastes says, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. The end of his talking is mischievous madness. Note the progression. The beginning is foolishness. The end is madness. And that's the part that's applicable to all of us. There but for the grace of God, we take that first step and we keep going. And we eventually end up somewhere very dark. All right, so what does that look like? Well, it's entertaining rather than fighting lustful thoughts because, hey, nobody will know. We've got to be careful we don't say, hey, I'm really struggling with lust when you're actually not struggling at all. You're enjoying it. It's not reporting that one source of income because it can't be that big of a deal. It's not that much taxes and it's not worth the hassle. It's accepting that Facebook friend request from someone who likes to post racy pictures and who has no mutual friends with you because, uh, hey, it looks like they need a friend. It's sharing that meme that's a little harsh, maybe even a little unfair, but this is the time for it. It's listening to angry people on podcasts and TV shows and YouTube videos and thinking they're probably too angry and knowing it'll make you angry, but it's entertaining. It's sharing prayer requests that are gossip. It's moving from generosity to greed in the smallest of ways. It's hiding that small sin from the accountability of others because it's not that big of a deal. But it is because it's the start of the path. That but for the grace of God, we go, and that for the grace of God, we'll keep going. And it's not fair to say we would all end up at the same spot. What is fair to say is that we will all walk to a terrible place if repentance does not turn our steps around and move us back toward the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's why that which is hidden must come to light. It's the only way we have fellowship with God and with others, is to walk in the light. I'm going to talk about this next week, by the way. Um, I didn't plan for this to be a two-parter. Uh, and who knows, maybe the next part of, of First uh, John will coincide nicely with this. But I do want to talk about what it looks like to purposefully move into the light.
because uh, I don't, I don't want to just talk about the danger of the darkness. I want to talk about what makes the light compelling. But, but today we have to think about the dangers of the dark. So once again, we don't usually sprint into sin. We usually kind of wander into sin. Speed comes when we build momentum. One of the first years we moved to Traverse City, I went skiing with the kids at Traverse City Christian School. I had never been skiing before. Uh, so I was pretty excited, and I was pretty terrible. So the first day, I spent a whole lot of time with tow ropes and things and, you know, little tiny hills. But as the day went on, I, started, I was feeling pretty good about myself. Like, yeah, I got skiing. It's not that hard. So at the end of the day, where it's almost time to go, I'm like, okay, so I got to really give this a shot. So this was at Crystal, I think. And you ride up the big ski lift, and there's a big hill that goes down underneath the ski lift. And I'm watching, I'm, the end of the day, I'm going up the ski th lift, going, watching these people. And they're like talking as they're going down and stuff. I'm like, okay, I've, I probably have been shying away from a hill that's not that big of a deal. So I decided I'm going down that hill to finish the day. I crest the hill. And to me, it looked like it went down like about at that angle. And I started some momentum and I just panicked and I threw myself on the ground and slid to a stop, took my skis off, pushed ahead of me and crawled back up to the top of the hill while everyone on the ski lift was watching. Okay, the reason I did that was that I knew where this momentum was going to go. At best, I'm probably breaking a leg. At worst, I might be crashing into people or the building at the bottom. I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be bad. i got to stop the momentum quick. Give me another, frankly, 20 feet, and I'm probably in trouble. And it was humiliating. But I would much rather be humiliated and make it up to the back of the hill in one piece than not be humiliated and uh, have something disastrous happen at the end. So that's, that's a parable. Right? When we, when we talk about our propensity to go into darkness, one of the things we have to wrestle with is what does it look like to kill that momentum, even if it is humiliating? And, and sometimes God does it for us. Sometimes we get caught on things where we are embarrassed that we're caught, and that might be personal or it might be legal. But sometimes the best things that can happen to someone who gets caught committing a small crime, so to speak, is that they are embarrassed and humiliated to go stand in front of a judge because it stops the momentum. And, yeah, it stops the momentum. And as I've been thinking about this passage about being in, in the light rather than the darkness, what are the things that I, that I long for God to do through his word, through his spirit, and through his people is to stop my momentum when I'm heading into darkness, and to stop your momentum when you're heading into darkness. And that happens three ways. I think it's his word, it's his spirit, and it's his people. Uh, those are all meant to stop our momentum and move us back toward the light. That's, that's sanctification, right? That's God's grace, is that kind of intervention. So I want to talk next week about ways in which that kind of intervention happens, ways in which we stop our momentum. And I'm not talking about things we just do in our own power. I'm talking about things God has given us to let us see the darkness that we're in and move us back toward the light. So once again, next week, I really want to do a part two on this where we're not only focusing on the darkness from this passage, but we're focusing on the beauty of the light. But until we get there next week, uh, and worship team, we're...
closing up here. I would really like us to think and pray about things this next week. And that could include moving you toward calling someone up. It could be me. It could be somebody else. If you need to call someone up and say, uh, dude, the darkness has been feeling pretty good, and I need to walk back toward the light, and I need accountability, et cetera. If, if this introspection moves you toward that, awesome. In fact, I hope it does. I hope it does. So here is six questions to think about this week. And once I read these questions, I think, Dan, I'm just going to turn it over to you. We're just going to go right into worship. And then when you wrap it up, um, pray about darkness and light. Okay. First question. Do I have a trajectory that is taking me toward darkness or light? And actually, on this side of heaven, I think we probably all have something that we need to think about here. Am I already in deep darkness, in need of a blinding light? How much of my life is hidden? And if it is hidden, what am I hiding? Am I being honest before God and others about what is happening? What does it look like to turn around? And how will repentance benefit my fellowship with God and others? I'm going to answer some of those questions next Sunday. Um, but until then, please take seriously this week, not because I crafted the sermon, but because I think this is biblical principles from 1 John. Think, pray, surrender yourself to God and to others so that we as a church, not only we individually move closer to God and to the light of his glory, but that we as a fellowship here benefit as the light shines in all of us and it builds this shining city on a hill as the light of God is in us and then displayed by us. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.